Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to have you here uh, today talking about uh, investing, the economy, all those important things to make your net worth grow here. And we've got a lot of things to cover today. We want to talk about uh, the annual home sales. Things are not going quite the way people want them to. Also, delinquencies, uh, you hear this in the media about, oh, they're, they're terrible and so forth. We'll talk more about that. Not as bad as the media makes it out to be. Also want to discuss core PCE, which is a, a personal uh, consumer <laughs> expenses. Uh, we'll talk about that. And then also more on the real estate market. Again, things that uh, help you manage your portfolio and your net worth and uh, stay on track. Chase? Hey, yeah, well, uh, good to be here as always. And uh, you want to kind of, I'm going to say, join this show indirectly here, but uh, you got a question, a stock you're looking at, you know, buy, sell, hold. We'll break down those fundamentals for you. All you have to do is go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. You'll see at the top of the webpage there, radio show questions or smart investing show questions. Click that, type in the question, and we'll get those answered. I know we have a little bit of a backlog since we weren't here live last last week, so mm. we probably have a, a few of those to get through today. But again, it doesn't even have to be a stock. We have some financial questions as well that, that have come through. So you have a financial question, a company you're looking at. Again, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com, and enter your question there. And uh, last week, I was thinking, where were we last week? But it was Thanksgiving, mm -hmm. and we run our show that uh, hopefully you got to catch that that show because it's very informative, gives you more detail on when we analyze investments, what we look at, how we look at it. So I hope you caught that show. If not, you can see it uh, or hear it on our, our website on our podcast, uh, but very helpful for investors on what our philosophy is. It has been for many, many years. I've been in the investment world for now 40 years, and this is what I've developed over the years to give you that uh, uh, non-emotional uh, you know, feeling on, on, on investing. Well, we've got a lot to go over today, so let, let's first uh, start off with the annual home sales. Uh, the higher rates uh, have put a damper on home sales, which is, well, no surprise. The seasonally adjusted annual sales came in at $3.8 million for October. Uh, not only is that a decline of 4.1% from December, it is the lowest seasonally adjustable annual home sales since August 2010, which was, well, about 13 years ago. Yeah, and I, 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 you probably didn't catch it, but you said from December, it was from September was the decline. Did I say December? Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't feel sharp today. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I, I was like, ah, oh, not last December, it's from September to October. Uh, how did I say that? I mean, December I, is not even you know, on, yeah. I, I, I don't know, because we're in December now. Maybe that, that threw Maybe you off. Maybe that's it, yeah. But the big thing that we're looking at is, is as interest rates pull back, somewhat going forward, we could see some better home sales, but I do not believe we'll see any type of 
boom that will cause home prices to increase substantially. I mean, it, it's just a very strange market, and we'll kind of get to that. So I'm going to kind of table some of those discussions until we get to the other uh, pending home sales, actually, what we'll kind of look at. So Yeah, we'll talk more about that when we get to the real estate market here. Because um, let's talk about the delinquencies, because uh, you may be hearing about the increase in delinquencies for Americans, but at the end of September... Just 3% of outstanding debt was in some stage of delinquency. What you won't hear is back in 2009, the delinquency rates hit a record 12%. And going back to a more normal economy in 2019, delinquency rates were at 4.7. So again, keep in mind, they're saying, oh my gosh, delinquency is 3%. We are nowhere near any problem. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing we look at too is, you know, here's another fact for you that shows things are not as bad as the media wants you to believe. As a whole, consumers use an average of only 24.1% of their credit card allowance, which is still below 2019 when it was 24.6% of the outstanding allowance. And people want to say, oh, I don't know, but that's getting kind of close. 24.6 versus (laughs) 24.1. But think back to 2019. Were people really concerned back then? I, I pe- no. There's some people that are always, oh, oh the, the, the doomsdayers. Yeah. Right. But on average, as a whole, you know, I mean, most people thought the economy was in a pretty darn good place in 2019. There's always a little crack, so to speak. Right. But nothing like you really seen like, oh, my gosh, we're going to have a recession. I, I'd say recession talks were very minimal in 2019. Well, Chase, and think about 2019, everything was... I don't want to say rosy, but looked pretty good. We had no wars in, uh, uh, with, with Russia and Afghanistan, or not Afghanistan, uh, Ukraine. Uh, nothing in the Middle East. Uh, no fear of inflation. Um, it, it was a pretty good time. And, and that's what you have to look at. And, and what the, the media wants to do, they always want to scare people because, oh, my gosh, this is terrible, and they talk about it. Well, we talk about the other side saying you shouldn't be talking about it because it's not worthy talking about and and you also then the worry was oh people won't be able to spend well on christmas and it's gonna be a bad holiday season well that got blown away this past week i forget who it was that came out there was some big company said our stores are packed we're making big sales we're gonna do very well they they think that the holiday sales will be up three four maybe five percent this year yeah and it was interesting actually um I don't have the numbers with me, but I do know that, you know, Black Friday, you know, the Thanksgiving shopping, Cyber Monday, uh, the results were pretty darn good there. Now, I will say I think there was a lot of demand that was essentially pulled forward. I don't think it's necessarily going to carry out in the same fashion. I mean, we talked about in the office yesterday. I did all my shopping or I say probably three quarters of my shopping over the weekend. Right. Thanksgiving weekend. I know well, you, you and Harrison you're, haven't done it yet. You're unique. Uh, you, you finally uh, upgraded from your iPhone uh, 8 to a what? <laughs> 14, 14 or 13. So you, I, you're I good for another know. 10 years. So you're kind of unique when it comes to shopping. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what that has to do with Christmas. But, <laughs> but the, the thing that I'm looking at is I think a lot of people have kind of done that. And, and there is, don't get me wrong, right? inflation has been, you know, problematic. I'm not going to say it's like, oh, there is no inflation. Right, right. I mean, inflation has constrained some people's budgets, but again, it hasn't created the big problems that people have thought. And I think that with the higher prices, that's why more people like myself want to take advantage of some of the deals that took place early in the, the, the holiday season. I kind of like to get it done with, too, so I don't have to worry about it. There's a lot of other things around the holidays going on. So it's like, ah, I'm, I'm done shopping. I think you will see... I don't want to say a softening, but not an acceleration in spending as right. as we go through the rest of the year. Well, and I I almost feel we should kind of get away from this, you know, Black Friday thing, 
because back when I was younger, back even you know 40 years ago, Black Friday was a big thing because before Thanksgiving, you had nothing. You now go to Costco at the end of September, you see holiday gifts, yeah. you see holiday trees, you see, so the spending actually starts. And I know that they're not gonna put it up and just let it sit there, people are buying it. And so what you do have now is not a, we'll call it 30 days from Black Friday to to uh, uh, Christmas. You now have, what, what's that, uh, two months, three yeah. months, you know? So it, it's been expanded out. So obviously if you're spending money in September, October for the holiday season, you don't have as much to spend come, you know, uh, uh, Black Friday. And, and yeah. so, so the numbers, they're much longer than they used to be. So you can't just kind of focus on that. But again, you still do. And they're still good. Yeah. So. I, I mean, that's the thing, too, is <clears throat> you look at the overall sales. I, I think they're still going to be good come, I, I'm going to say December 31st, just to make it easy. You know, the right. end of the year, I, I think holiday sales are, are going to be there. I think they're going to be a good number. And, you know, they're not we've talked about this before, but they're not going to accelerate like they have in the past. But I still still believe we will see, see an increase, you know, and, and people I, aren't going to increase spending if they don't feel right. good. And I'm not sure, but I believe that when they look at the holiday sales, they do look from Black Friday through through the, through Christmas, I believe, is when they look at. I don't think they include what happened in October. It's so hard because there's the NRF, there's the, um, you know, just kind of like Adobe now. Right. There's so many different statistics. So I think there, I know there are some that include other details outside of Black Friday. I think you are right. I think there are other calculations that include the just just from Black Friday. Right. So that's really where, again, you have to understand the data. And this is the big mistake. Oh, you can select a certain time period. And as you said, it's like maybe, maybe sales aren't as strong from Black Friday through the end of the year. And people are like, oh, you see, things are terrible. But if you look at sales maybe from, I'm just going to make it easy on myself, from the beginning of November right. through the end of December. And it's like, well, actually, there was an uptick in the beginning of November. So through the end of the year, things were kind of normalized. But that's where people get fixated on data and they don't understand the full picture. And that's right. what we try and do is if there's something wrong, let's say that a number looks bad. Well, why does it look bad? Right. You know, actually digging through the details to see if there's a reason for it. And I'll tell you, sometimes numbers are bad because they're bad. <laughs> <laughs> but trying to understand that and having that critical thinking is so important. And unfortunately, a lot of times people lack that. They just look at the headlines. Right. Well, and actually, uh, Friday night, my wife and I, we went to our favorite restaurant, the winery in UTC. And I, I just didn't think about being the holidays. You, uh, one thing nice now, you got the electronic thing say, one parking spot over there. By the time you get there, it's gone. But the parking lot was jam-packed. And it's just like, gosh, what am I doing going out here on a, on a Friday night uh, during holiday season to, to a mall? And the mall was packed inside. People are shopping. They're spending. The other thing, too, you see people carrying in bags. They're not just they're looking. They're carrying bags. So I think it will be a good holiday season based on what we're seeing. Yeah, and I, I did want to circle back again to the, the whole point of this conversation was, again, the percentages that we use. Yeah. And we've talked about this a lot. But don't just look at absolute dollars. Right. That's where people blow out the headlines. Credit card spending is through the roof. <laughs> People's credit card balances are at record highs. That's why we want to look at the percentages because, again, people's incomes are at yeah. record highs. People's assets. 
I believe are at record highs. They they may have pulled back a little bit. I'm just going to say near record right. highs. But you even look back to 2019, people's assets have grown pretty substantially over that time period. Their incomes have grown pretty substantially. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the spending is going to increase. That's just the way things work. That's why you look at the percentages, not the absolute dollars. Yeah, we kind of kind of parlayed in, into the holiday season, got away from, from the delinquencies. But, um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that back. Let's talk about our core PCE, which is a, a personal consumer expenditures. Uh, the Fed's preferred measure known as core PCE rose just 3.5% year over year in the month of October which was down from 3.7% in September and marked the lowest reading since April 2021. Core PCE excludes food and energy from the headline number. Now, if we look at the headline PCE, it was actually even more impressive due to lower energy prices as it rose just 3% compared to last year, which was down from 3.4% in September. This report is further evidence that inflation is continuing to decelerate and reinforces our belief that the Fed's interest rate hiking cycle, it, it's I think it's ended. Yeah. I, I don't think they're yeah. going to increase rates anymore. And, and it just drives me crazy where people are so fixated on what the Fed heads are saying right now it's right. not even just what powell is saying but now what the other members are saying as well and it's like oh well they left it on the table that they still might do more hikes of course they're gonna do that <laughs> they're they have to yeah. they, they have to say hey you know if inflation goes back up yeah we are gonna have to hike rates they're not gonna say oh no it's done yeah because all of a sudden if inflation were to go up again in march of next year they're gonna look like idiots and can you imagine if they did that saying, yep, we're done. Everything is great. Don't worry. Rates are not going to go up. They're going to go down. Go have a free-for-all. I mean, you would have that. And then you're right. If in February, March, like, oops, we now have inflation. Now we got to turn back on the 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 uh, spigot to cut you know rates. That'd be devastating. So they always talk on the side of caution, which they should. And even with that, though, we've still seen a nice decline in the 10-year treasury. We've seen some movements in, in the equity side, so we're getting a good move, and we're starting to hear more about the, the cuts uh, happening in 2024. I think I, the first one I'm hearing now is May, and, and I say I don't think we really need the cuts to happen um, because we've got a good economy, and, and rates are reasonable at this point. I was just concerned about them going too high when they shouldn't have had to. So Yeah, and I, I mean, I've heard things that, you know, it's maybe even as early as March from some analysts. Yeah, I think I've heard that. Yeah. I've heard over a percent of cuts. I, I think that might yeah. be a little aggressive there. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I just think, because again, we said the Fed is cautious. Right. And I, I, frankly, we talked about this a lot with the whole transitory inflation. I think they were being too cautious on that front, not increasing rates. I think they're going to be cautious again going forward, not reducing rates too much. Because again, if we still have... And I think it's possible that inflation does get, again, to near the 2% target next year. I don't think that really creates the reason to cut by a full percentage. Right. I mean, I think you could maybe see half a percent of cuts. I, I think that's a realistic possibility, but a full percent would be pretty darn aggressive. And it could stoke inflation again if all of a sudden people start, oh, wow, this is great. No, rates are now right. low and they go out spending. That could be a problem. And I don't think we need to see any cuts until late summer, early fall. I just don't see the need for it. We've got a decent economy. Let's stay with a decent economy. Let's not – and I think the Fed would, would again, be cautious to 
go back like they did in the seventies, you know, cut too soon. So I'd say Let, let's wait till the end of summer and fall and see how things go. Yeah, no, I I, I definitely agree. Uh, I was gonna. It's funny to have have these side notes today that we start with one topic and it leads down to another. <laughs> but I, I I was I was watching CNBC the other day. Um, I was homesick, so I wasn't <laughs> working, and I normally don't watch it during but wait, this hour. You told me you're working at home. You weren't working at home. I was watching CNBC though. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I, I was. You know. I was. Just, uh, I was on my computer and, and watching CBC at the same time, but the thing is that this guy nice was recovery, on. By the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this guy was on, and he's a normal commentator, and he was talking about, you know, just that. Yeah, he thinks rates are going to come down, and how the economy's it, it's still going to, you know, kind of be recovering, so to speak, right. and, and it, it's it's still going to be okay. And the the host was asking, so where should he be? And he's like, oh, you got to be in growth stocks, you got to be in the big tech stocks. And he's like, well. But doesn't that normally do well for value? He's like, oh, no, no, no. And the thing that just drives me crazy here is any environment, right. you know, we saw increasing interest rates. Where should you have been? Oh, growth stocks, growth stocks. tech stocks. Oh, things are slowing down now. Rates are coming back down. Where should you be? Oh, tech growth. stocks. This is a big problem, and I, I really think things are going to slow down for those big tech stocks. Right. And even Jim Cramer yesterday, who's been Wait, huge. Wait, Jim Cramer is, is he has been huge on NVIDIA and, and right. those names. You said, I really think you're going to see a large broadening out right. in the stock market. You know, I think I did. It was that in the morning. I think mm -hmm. that, yeah, because I think I did hear him say that, that, you know, not to be in, uh, not to be investing in, in tech stocks because they, they're pretty much done, but there will be, as you said, the broadening out to, yeah. to go their areas because that has not cut off. And we've talked about that for, for a long time now, how the tech stocks have just taken a big part of the market share and have been increasing, uh, not balanced, but yet there's other ones that are behind. And I think that in 2024, that's going to be the place to be. And you may see, we've talked about this for in the past, where tech stocks go up, 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 and then they do one of two things. They either decline dramatically or for years they sit there and do nothing because they got the earnings have to get up to the valuations uh, of what they're trading at. So I think we'll see that next year. Yeah, and I'm, I just, I, when I look at it, I, I don't necessarily see anything that could send them down 50 percent yeah. let's say but the thing is you never know if all of a sudden growth doesn't come in and it comes in maybe even five percent less i mean that could i mean i'll go back to meta you know when meta had right. that massive decline it's now recovered since then it had that massive decline it it wasn't really anything i'm going to say catastrophic that right. took down the stock and that's what people miss is it it could just be a little hiccup and all of a sudden it, it's you know a quarter two quarters of you know okay data, not great data, just okay right. data, and all of a sudden the stock falls. I mean, it's possible that that does happen again with your Microsofts, your Apples, your Teslas, your NVIDIAs. It, it's definitely possible that happens. But even without that, if they just plateau over the next five to ten years, it's not a place that you want to be. Yeah, which, which you know, we, we think is going to happen because we've seen this happen before in, in the tech boom and bust. It was the same thing. They went way up dramatically. Everybody loved tech, and then it reached the point. I mean, nothing goes to the moon. And they cannot have these earnings that just keep growing and growing to justify, and we've talked about Apple, to justify a high PE multiple of 25 to 35. It just makes no sense. And eventually it will plateau. And, and that's where you're going to be disappointed. Like, oh, I can't make any money in stocks. Well, no, because you missed to buy the rights companies that are trading at 10 times earnings. And, and frankly, the, the <clears throat> discrepancy between growth and value stocks, again, is at just astronomical levels. I mean, growth has done very, very well. Don't get me wrong. But the problem is, over history, 
when we look at the discrepancies that have occurred between growth and value, normally things reverse. Right. <clears throat> and it, that's where we really feel strongly as value investors that, yeah, we're going to have a comeback here and, and we are going to catch back up to growth. Historically, things always revert back to that. Yeah. And when I say historically, <clears throat> you know, I, I was actually talking to a potential client and he was asking me about my our, our prospects for the next 25 to 40 years. I was like, wow, that's a pretty long, that's good. long-term time period. Right. And I said, you know, we're very confident in the value investing. It goes back to the 1920s, really in the form and fashion that we utilize. You know, there are some earlier dates as well, but that's really when Benjamin Graham made value investing kind of more prominent. That's now 100 years ago. Right. I mean, I'm going to bring up Charlie Munger. You know, I want to bring him up. Obviously, yes. he's passed away, unfortunately, this, this last week. But, you know, him, Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, they've made value investing really famous and it's not like it's been famous. I'm going to pick on Kathy Wood for a few years. <laughs> right. It's been famous <clears throat> and worked for a hundred years now, right. close to a hundred years. I, I get irritated when I see her on TV. I just don't like the way she speaks. I, it's kind of degrading almost, yeah, or like yeah. condescending. I think is the word where I think she thinks she's a lot smarter, and it's like your fun's still down seventy percent <laughs> from like your high. Like, yeah. And it's like I and, and they, if you look over her five year return, it's really not that, that impressive. Agree. Yeah, and I, I guess that's why when I hear her speak, I I listen like I, I I don't like what you're saying because you're 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 talking like you're you're doing so well. But you're down, as you said, what seventy percent from your peak? It's like no, you you shouldn't be on TV. I mean, it's just you, you got lucky picking things, and they went up dramatically. And and I I think eventually she'll be be gone because things won't come back to where she says they will. And, and all of a sudden, yeah. and ten years later, she's still not going to be at the peak that they had. Right. And it's going to be like, why did we leave our money in there? Yeah, and I, she reminds me of uh, Elaine Garzarelli, who you probably don't recognize. A lot of people don't recognize her, but she was very famous in the late '80s. They're calling the the the, the uh, uh, Black Monday, yeah. and she was famous for that. And she was saying that oh, things are gonna drop and drop for like three, four years, and eventually you didn't hear anything more about it because she was completely wrong. Yeah. So, but anyways, let's move on to uh, the real estate market because uh, just how strange is the current real estate market? Well, pending home sales, which looks at signed contracts in the month of October, dropped eight point five percent compared to last year and Richard, the lowest reading since the National Associated Realtors began tracking them 2001. Gosh, that's 22 years ago. Yeah, and, and this really means that home sales are worse now than the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. I mean, think about that. I mean, obviously, 2001, <laughs> yeah, that was before yeah, the, the, that's right. the, the recession. I, that's just crazy to me. Now, the main issues in the month were high interest rates, as we discussed, which did shoot above 8%. And also the limited amount of supply. Now, given the wild swing in interest rates, I still believe it will take a few years for the real estate market to normalize. I still believe that, you know, we kind of talked about this earlier with the, the home sales, is yes, I think interest rates are going to come down. Right. I don't think interest rates are going to go down to 3%. I don't even think on the 30 year you're going to get a 4% mortgage. It might dip down into the fours, but I don't think you're going to see a 4% mortgage essentially yeah. over the next five years. I, I just think that interest rates are going to stay a little bit more elevated than people were used to. But the problem is, is the supply is so limited out there. It's almost, I'm going to say falsifying the market numbers because prices haven't really gone anywhere, I'm going to no. say. No. And with the higher interest rates, that should have put pressure on the price, but it hasn't because the supply is so limited. So it's almost like I've used this example before 
where you have such a limited supply of a, a particular stock that it's not a real indicator of what's happening in the market because the, the market's so limited. You right. could have, you know, I'm going to say you have like a thousand shares outstanding. That's a very limited number. All of a sudden, there's only 10 people buying. Well, yeah, the price could shoot way up, but that's so small. Right. And it's kind of if you get more supply out there, it really tests where things are in the real estate market. But right now, you just you don't have that. Yeah, and and I we don't see a market crash. On no, real not estate. at all. No, but it, it's just you're not going to have the, these gains like you had before. And you really we're going to have I think a more more normal market going forward on the real estate side as well. We we might go up maybe you know two percent, maybe three percent, maybe four percent, uh, maybe do nothing at all, maybe go down two or three percent. But the problem is people think that real estate is going to give them these big gains based on past performance. And that's not going to happen because same thing, valuations. Uh, the price of a home is very richly valued. I was talking to a, a gentleman, a neighbor of mine who's a developer, and he was talking about in Rancho Santa Fe that houses are selling for 2000 a square foot. I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, I know Rancho Santa Fe is, I think, the most expensive place in the country to live. One of. I know there's like Atherton up and like obviously. Okay. And, yeah, there is, it's it's one of the most expensive. One of the most expensive. Yeah. But it's just so crazy. I mean, and, and I... I've been to Rancho Santa Fe. I have people that live there. It's like, yeah, it's beautiful, but I would never spend 2,000 square foot to live there. And and I think you get these peaks that are just here, and we're there. That There's no way that, that things will go up higher uh, to any big amount. Yeah, big amount, because I, I still think things are going to increase in real estate over the next 10, 15, 20 years. But I, I just have heard predictions like, oh, well, just wait till interest rates go down to 5%, 4%. You're going to see a huge boom in prices I don't see that. I mean, there, because right now the affordability is so limited that, yeah, if interest rates were to pull back, it would fix some of the affordability, but you increase prices on it, it takes you right back to an affordability issue. You know, it's a problem. And the big thing that I think could happen is if rates pull back, I think that at that point, people that have been delaying buying a new house, upgrading to a new house would say, yeah, you know, maybe I, I will put my house on the market and buy something else. Right. And, Nothing to be more of a, a natural market to where, you know, people have a family, they get married, they buy a smaller house, then they start having one, two kids, like, oh, gee, we need a bigger house, they'll buy that. Uh, older people saying, gee, the kids have left the house now, we don't need, you know, 3,000 square feet, let's sell this house and buy something just for us. So you'll have these natural movements, but not this boom that we had to where everybody had to get real estate, and, oh, you, you're missing out if you don't. Uh, those days are gone. So uh, any other comments on the real estate? Side? No, I was just saying, no. I really yeah. think the big problem is it, it, it needs to normalize, yeah. and it, it I do think it's going to take a, around three to five years for the real yeah. estate market to normalize. That doesn't mean you're going to see a big price drop. Again, I don't think you're going to see a big price boom. I think they're just going to kind of be this, it's going to be in flux essentially, and then I think in about three to five years, you, you will see prices come back to a more normalized market. Right. And I will say that, uh, you know, I was a big proponent of, of renting, which I still am, and I'll tell you why. I mean, I did find a great deal on a house, a place I wanted to live, and I wanted to stay there, because one thing about renting is they can say, nope, selling the house, you got to get out. When you own it, you don't have to worry about that. But I am so pissed off because I bought this house, and I've had two problems already with the pool. It cost me like $1,000 for each repair. It's yeah. like, didn't have that before when I was renting, <laughs> you know? And plus the property taxes, oh my gosh. 
Yeah, welcome to California. Yeah. Oh, and then the insurance costs. You know, I'm going to sell my house, go back to rent. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, if you like these topics, uh, they come from our newsletter, which is a free newsletter. It goes out every Friday at uh, 5 o'clock. Uh, other things we talk about here, some great topics this, uh, this week uh, was uh, talking about the soft saving. Uh, this is from the Gen Z. Uh, you you got to read it because it's pretty amazing. We talk about the environment. Uh, we also talk about uh, vaccinations and how the medical market for drug companies could be changing in the future from drugs to vaccinations. And then we did, we, we kind of talked about it before the show, but uh, Bitcoin, be honest with you, we just don't understand how Bitcoin is where it's at because of the fact that it just it is based on the hype of the ETS, but Bitcoin is still a gambling chip. But I think you'll see this drop. But if you want more information on that, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. That is smartinvesting2000.com. And right in the middle of the page, you'll see newsletter. Click on that. Sign up for it. And it'll go out to you every Friday at 5 o'clock. Well, I, I would, would talk more on Bitcoin, but we've got so many questions here that we want to get to those questions. And, and I want to first it off, I think this was... Um, uh, came from, let's see, do we have his, well, I don't think we have a name for this person. I forgot to ask his name. Okay. So it is, uh, let's see, diabetic company that I purchased about a year ago and it is, uh, has tanked since then. I was wondering if it is still in good shape for the long term. They just got done with a one year test with the FDA and are trying to compete with Dexcom. So that company is Sensonics Holding uh, incorporated the symbol is S-E-N-S. So let's take a look at that company here. We see they are in the medical devices industry, which I think is a pretty good industry. You can get it, some good deals here. Uh, they do have almost 10% short on the float, which is a little bit higher than I'd like to see. And, and this is strange. Institutional ownership, only 24%. That's very low. Now, they do not, do not have a P-E ratio, um, which means they have no earnings. The industry is at 73%. Price to sales are expensive, 18.5 versus at 3.8 for the industry. Price to book, 6.5, also about double the industry. It's 3.6. No price to cash flow, no peg ratio. So, so far, not a good start here. Uh, they have no earnings over the last uh, growth, no earnings growth over the last a year or five years. And then uh, sales were up 34% for the past year, which is above the industry at 0.7%. Uh, they do not pay a dividend. Taking a look at the balance sheet, well, here's a good, some good news. They got a current ratio of 8.5 versus 2.3, so a lot of liquidity. And the debt to equity, not a problem, 0.9 versus 0.5. So the company does have some staying power to make it through some difficult periods. We do see a net profit margin of a negative 158% versus a positive 5.5. You'd want to find out why they had such a big loss. Could have done some big investment, bought some building or something there, but uh, want to understand that. But even return on equity looks terrible, negative 60.8 versus 10.8. And uh, <clears throat> return on invested capital also negative 17.5. So. Got some questions here. What do you got, Chase? Yeah, so I see current price for, again, this company, Sensonics. Uh, ticker symbol is S-E-N-S. It's 64 cents. Now, the 52-week range, the low is 46 cents, and the high is $1.27. I will point out it, its market cap is just $311.8 million. So, I mean, Small this is company. a tiny, tiny company. And frankly, I'm, I'm kind of surprised even that there are earnings estimates, not not positive, yeah. but I'm surprised there's analysts on it to provide earnings estimates because I got to December 2024, the estimated earnings, or not earnings, the estimated loss per share is 15 cents. 
and, and, that, and that's going out to uh, December 2024. And uh, what I also look at too many times is where the earnings have been over the last 90 days. And actually, they're getting worse. 90 days ago, they were negative 12 cents. Uh, now they're negative 15 cents. So not a good uh, good direction on those. And that does go to 2024. 2023, they're expecting to make about 12 cents. Uh, lose 12 lose cents. Lose 12 cents. Uh, 2023. So we just don't like to buy companies that are losing money, projected to lose money. It is a small company. This is very risky. Uh, and, and, and Dexcom could be at, you know, $5 a share, you know, uh, a year or two from now. But I, I, Not I, Dexcom. Sensonics. Dexcom's way higher than... <laughs> oh, Dexcom. I'm sorry. I, I, I just saw Dexcom. I, right I, had to, I had to cut out. I felt like I was going to sneeze. I was middle of my I thought thought. you were going to like, cough or something no, over there. I was <laughs> like, oh, give me a break. But I was going to say, the hard thing with a company like this is, frankly, the earnings mean nothing at all. And what I mean by that is, I, just based off what I was told on this company and based off what I'm seeing here, is it sounds like they're going through testing right now. If this they, is a device maker company, so they have some device they're testing. Is that what? That's yeah, yeah. And, and you still have to go through testing to make sure your device works. Obviously, yeah, true. Now, if the data comes back and the data's strong on it, yeah, the stock will go up. But if the data is not that strong on it, it the stock will go under. It, it'll right. go out. I mean, they have a high current ratio, obviously, because they have so much liquidity. They're needing to kind of burn through that cash over right. a time period. And <clears throat> I don't know what that runway is for them to be a competitor with Dexcom. Also, maybe their technology is okay and another bigger company thinks they can come in and buy them and improve that technology. That's possible. Or Dexcom says, no, ours is better. We don't need right. your technology. <laughs> we'll wipe you out. So the problem with companies like this is it's very hard to do fundamental analysis, which I think helps, again, remove that emotional component because this is such a big risk that it doesn't really matter on the fundamentals of the company because it's a guessing game of what's going to happen with the device how successful will it be it's kind of like a drug company that really doesn't have any drug sales just yet because they're waiting to get that approval and yeah maybe that drug gets approved and it's great but if it doesn't you have no company same issue here you have right. no company if this device doesn't work and we hold a large drug company in our portfolio and unfortunately had a drug that did not pass the the fda they got i think do more studies or something but it it hurt but not that much because they have other major drugs as well but when you have a company like this that is focusing on one thing it can make or break that company to where you can make a lot of money with it because yes it passed but if it doesn't pass i think the low i saw somewhere was i think 46, 46 cents. cents yeah you could definitely see it go back to the 46 cents if oh, they don't pass I, it wouldn't even go back to 40 it, it'd go it'd go under it, yeah it, yeah i mean if it doesn't work you're hinging your your belief on one one device it sounds like this company's non-existent. Yeah, and, and to me, that's more of a gamble because it's not based on the fundamentals. We don't know the fundamentals. Again, they got a great balance sheet, so they can weather the storm. But if they they don't pass that with that device, um, yeah. They, I mean, they're... you you would have to be you know a scientist almost to really understand this company because like I said the financials don't really matter. It's the technology and the science behind what they're offering. And right. even then, you'd have to work there to understand the the true details. It's yeah. as you said, it's a guess, it's gamble. I mean, gamble. is it is it going to pay off? I I don't know. Go to Vegas, see if you you throw. I don't know. You're looking at investing, but you, you throw ten thousand dollars on one hand of blackjack. Hey, maybe you you make money. You know, <laughs> I'm going to Vegas concept. next week. I'm thinking like, oh, I would never do ten thousand. <laughs> I I have a hard time gambling five hundred dollars, even as much as I make. It's just like because I know I'm going to lose it. Yeah, you know, it, it just makes no sense. And the same thing with with the Sensonic. I I I just yeah, there's potential there to maybe have a big return 
Um, and, and then what people say, well, I'll just throw a little bit of money at it. Well, but you do a little bit of money there, a little bit of money over this one. Just don't do that. I mean, just, you, you know, if you're looking longer term, just just buy good quality businesses, hold on to them. And uh, yeah, maybe it's exciting, but I don't know. I just And maybe it money. does hit, but maybe it doesn't and you lose yeah. everything. It's, yeah, that's where are... you got to go back to my, uh, the post I wrote on soft saving because yes. I talk about compounding, and if you don't compound, there's big issues. Yes, yeah, and that's why again you gotta get the newsletter because it, it was a pretty long one, and it was really good on the soft saving thing. But I just thought, uh, and and plus all the numbers there, you really gotta read that. It's kind of yeah. hard to to actually uh, talk about it on there. All right, uh, let's talk to uh, yeah, he is there, our financial planner, uh, Harrison uh, Johnson. Harrison, how you doing today? I'm doing well, guys. How are you doing? Well, good, good. Uh, you know, thanks for being here today. I, I know you got, I, I can't find the notes here on what your topic is today, so I'm, I'm going to turn the mic over to you. So what I wanted to talk about today was income versus cash flow. Everyone wants to have more income, but it's also important to understand your incoming cash flow and how income and cash flow are different, especially when preparing for retirement. Income is what you have to report to the IRS and determines how much you pay in taxes, while cash flow is the actual dollar amount of funds you have coming in from various sources. Income and cash flow often get confused for being the same, and at times they can be, but depending on how you structure your income and cash flow, one can be larger or smaller than the other. And typically, when you are retirement planning, you want to plan to create a certain level of cash flow that will support your lifestyle, and separately, you want to set a target income level so that your adjusted gross income and taxable income stays within the right parameters. So here are some examples of what I'm talking about. Um, I met with someone this last week who was getting ready to retire and they wanna live on $20,000 a month or about $240,000 a year. So that's the cash flow we are planning for. However, they have a sizable amount of assets in a non-retirement account. So we will be able to generate that $20,000 a month, but on paper, it's only going to be reportable as five to $6,000 a month, depending on the level of capital gains and dividends they end up having. So in this case, they have their cash flow of 240 a year, but they'll only report income to the IRS of about 60 or so, and will pay far less taxes on that. Now we could leave it at that, but they also have a sizable pre-tax retirement account, which will eventually push them into the highest tax bracket in about 15 years due to required distributions. So to combat that, while they are withdrawing from their non-retirement account, we will also be converting their IRA to their Roth so that their income reaches around $365,000 now, which is the threshold between the 24 and the 32% tax bracket, which will ultimately ensure that they never get subject to that higher tier of taxes in the 33, 35, 39.6% range. So these conversions do not change their cash flow, but they increase their income to a target level that will reduce their lifetime tax bill, in this case, by about $12 million or so. The goal here was to have a higher income than cash flow because in the long term, that's going to give them the cash flow they need, will also reduce the taxes paid, and also result in a higher net worth over time. Well, in other cases, it makes sense to have a lower level of income than cash flow which I met with another person this last week and basically said, okay, your target income is $22,000 a year. So what she said, there's no way I can live on that, which is probably true. However, her actual cash flow is going to be about $90,000 a year coming from Social Security, IRA withdrawals, and Roth withdrawals. 
in a way that most of her Social Security is not taxable, and the remaining taxable Social Security and IRA withdrawals are offset by the standard deduction, meaning she will pay no taxes at all on that $90,000 a year. So in this case, we wanted income on paper to be less, and then cash flow you know, can be a lot higher. So the point is, a lot of people think cash flow and income are the same, but they are not. They should be planned separately so that you can generate your needed cash flow to live and enjoy your life while also keeping your lifetime tax bill as low as possible. And, and Harrison, you know, I listen to you talk here as people are as well. The thing I'm thinking too is like people have to start planning for this. You have to lay out the plan. It doesn't just happen and fall from the sky. That's, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, when you look at the planning over the long term, you go through a phase where you are accumulating assets, you're in your career, you're working. And it's, it's one thing to accumulate assets, but it's also important to plan and accumulate them in the right way, because ultimately, we accumulate assets to generate a future source of cash flow. So if you can accumulate assets and put them in the right types of accounts, use the right types of assets, that means when you transition into retirement, well, now you have everything set up efficiently so you can start withdrawing and, again, generate that cash flow you need. It just looks a whole lot less on paper. So overall, your lifetime tax bill is much, much less. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's, it's very similar to understanding businesses and income and cash flow are functions of one another. But you need to understand both. They're not always going to move in kind of correlation. And that comes down in personal financial planning to understanding really the, the taxability of it. And, and that's where I think a lot of people, I'm going to say, just lack the knowledge and, and the resources to understand that. And I mean, that's obviously where you kind of come into play, Harrison, to, to break that down. Because again, the average person, well, what do you mean there's a difference between income and cash flow? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, at face value, it seems like they're exactly the same. And you're right, Chase. And companies, it's it's also the same. That's why you have cash flow reports and income reports, because, um, again, one determines the income tax you pay. The other determines how much cash you have coming in and going out. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, don't look on it on the individual side and they just say, OK, well, you know, you make more money, you pay more taxes. And depending how you structure the actual cash flow, that doesn't that doesn't always um, have to be true. Right. Well, Harrison, as always, a very uh, good information for people. And uh, if they want a free consultation, we'll tell them how they can contact you. But thanks for being here, and we'll see you on Monday. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you Monday. All righty. Okay, again, that's uh, Harrison Johnson, our financial planner. He is a CFP. And by the way, he's on a salary. He does not sell you know, annuities or life insurance or high commission products to make his money. He's on a salary. So he is unbiased. He's a fee-based planner. If you'd like a free consultation with him, uh, give him a call at the office, 858-546-4306. Again, 858-546-4306. Or go to the website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that is smartinvesting2000.com. And, and I just love because Harrison's office is kind of like, I guess, kitty corner to mine. And, you know, I can see he spends a lot of time with people to really answer questions and and really lays out and ask good questions to get questions to people ask well yeah i mean it you know our whole job is on investing is we want to find good investments right. and 
we spend a lot of time on that research. Harrison's whole thing is it's, I'm going to say, much more personalized, where he needs to understand your whole situation, needs to look at all the details that you have. And a lot of that comes from just listening and understanding what things are so you can formulate a good plan. It's like you go to somebody and you give them a little bit of information. You can't generate a right. good financial plan with that. You need to have that understanding before pulling all the details together. And the thing I would say, too, is that his whole job is financial planning. He's not spending part of his time looking at mutual funds or what to do with the economy. or And he knows stuff like that. But his job is spent looking at doing a financial planning for you. Our job is actually managing money. So it works out very well. And again, you don't need to do the investing with us to have a financial plan with Harrison. Maybe you have some real estate. Maybe you have some things that you're kind of doing yourself, but you want a good financial planner. You can use Harrison since he is a fee-based planner. Again, 858-546-4306. And I think he's number four or five on the prompt, I think, I believe, somewhere around there. My guess would be four. Four. Okay. Well, or go to the – also very easy. Go to the website, smartinvesting2000.com, and fill out the uh, <laughs> appointment request. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, well, let's go back to our email questions here. And, and if you do want to submit a question uh, that you have on investing, on a company you're looking at buying or selling, uh, go to our website. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And right in the middle of the page, stands out pretty well. It says Smart Investing Show Questions. Just click on that and you can submit the question. So i got a question here from Robert, uh, which is a quick one here. He says, uh, why do you feel your method of investing is more profitable than mutual funds with an investment company that has low fees? And he says, thank you for the uh, answer to that. Um, that is so easy, so complex to answer. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, there's so many different thoughts that I yeah. have, and I, I don't know if he's asking, and I can kind of go two ways with this, if you go to an advisor to use the mutual funds or if you just do the mutual funds oh. directly yourself. I'll start with the first one. If you use an advisor to use the funds, well, we always tell people you're paying double fees, essentially, where you're paying the advisor a fee, what's their fee, and then you have to know what all the mutual funds they use is and what's the fee within those funds. Now, if you don't use an advisor and you go directly to the fund, well, the problem is, what philosophy are they really using? You can't right. ask, you can't call up the mutual fund manager and be like, hey, why, why'd you pick this company? That doesn't make any sense. So you'd really have to dig through the details to understand their philosophy, understand how they're picking things. It, it's going to be a little bit more complicated, I would say. And, and one thing I've, again, been doing this for nearly 40 years is that uh, people say, well, I'm, I'm just going to go to the mutual funds and I'll just pick different mutual funds. Well, you can have, we talk about overlap to yep. where you might be picking three different funds that have, you know, five, six of the same companies in them, um, it, it, it just makes it so hard to get any performance from that. And and I always tell people, because when we quote our returns, we don't quote them on air because it's illegal, but when we talk to our clients, we always quote our returns net of all fees and charges. Mutual funds don't really do that. I guess well, It's complicated. It's complicated, yeah. So, But, but it's not just like, well, you might have, if you put everything in one mutual fund, it might be easier but then no one does that no. because you're taught, well, no, you can't do that. You've got to have different mutual funds. You've got to diversify. What we look at is that, no, we invest our money for profitability. And people say, well, what about you know asset allocation? What about you know older, younger? What I said years ago was everybody wants to have uh, make money on their portfolio. That's what our thing is. It's not to worry about asset allocation. We explain about volatility. We explain about all these different things to educate you on investing, not just take what I will call the couch potato 
approach, just sit on the couch and just pick a bunch of mutual funds and, and let them roll. That has not turned out very well for many people, especially people that had bonds, uh, a bond fund over the last few years. Yeah, I mean, it, that's the big thing. Again, if you're, I talked about why I don't think it makes sense to go to an advisor to do the mutual funds, but if you're doing the mutual funds yourself, the likelihood you pick one is very low. I would say most people yeah. are going to pick a few different ones. So then it's like, well, what is your philosophy on investing? Now you're kind of having to to come up with your investment strategy with that. Where you come to us, we, we tell people, you know, this is our philosophy. This is why we pick things. And, you know, my money, Brent's money is invested the same as all of our clients. That's what we're doing where, you know, you're kind of on your own with the mutual fund investing. And the other thing we talk about too is is the net redemptions is a lot of people don't realize that in mutual funds, you're pooled in with all other investors. So what happens during a downturn, people panic, they sell, they want to redeem their shares. Now fund managers actually have to make sales within that fund right. to then meet those redemptions. So then they make those sales. Well, now your ownership in those businesses now become diluted or completely disappeared. So with us, we actually individualize all of our accounts. So that way you actually own 100 shares of XYZ company, 50 shares of ABC mm-hmm. company. You own those positions. Our other clients aren't lumped in with you, so they don't have an impact on your portfolio. And also on those redemptions, as I said, fund managers are forced to sell things. Well, what could happen is things go down, they're forced to sell something. They might not want to sell the ones that are down. Right. They might sell the ones that are up. Now, you don't have any control over that. They made those sales. You get hit with a tax bill because they have to distribute those gains. <laughs> you just took away what I was going to say because that's actually my segment tomorrow morning on KOSI, which, by the way, usually on KOSI, I'm on at 840 on Sunday mornings, uh, they asked me if I can come in at 7.40, so I can an hour early tomorrow. But that's what I'm talking about, is that, you, and you don't know that. And if you have an advisor, their job should be saying, hey, we've got this coming up, you need to do something. But if you're doing it yourself, it's gonna happen. And once it happens, you can't reverse it. Then you gotta kinda, well, how do I fix this? So there are ways to fix it ahead of time, but these are things if you're doing it yourself, no one's going to – the mutual fund company is not going to tell you, hey, by the way, in a couple of weeks we're going to distribute some capital gains, which you got to pay tax on. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. I haven't made any money. Too bad. you yeah. got to pay tax on it. So this is where an advisor can be helpful. And if you do have an advisor and he doesn't tell you this, you probably want to fire that advisor because he's not doing his job. He's more worried about getting more sales in than taking care of his current clients where, wait a minute, you didn't tell me this. And now what do I do? I just I got to suck it up and pay taxes. I remember when I first got in the industry, gosh, back in the 80s, I remember that happened to me like, oh, shoot, I, I screwed up. Yeah. You know, it is a screw up by the advisor. Yeah. And, and you know, I hope that kind of covers it. I, but, you know, there, there are more details and, you know, some of it can be a little complicated. So if you do have further questions on how we do things and why we are better than a mutual fund in our belief, set an appointment with us. We're more than happy to go through the, the actual nitty gritty and the details to kind of show you, again, why we strongly believe our, our philosophy is better than the mutual fund strategy there. Yeah. And one thing, too, I kind of look at by going into for the appointment. Well, I, I think we have... And again, I've not seen a lot of the presentations, but our, our presentation, I think, is very well laid out. It's built well over 20 years yeah. where people ask questions. We'd say, well, that's a pretty good question. Let, let's add to that. And uh, it, it just helps educate you. And that's the whole thing is educate people on investing. We don't have any magic uh, secret sauce or anything. We use the true fundamentals and explain to you what's going to happen. And we actually tell people out of a seven-year period, guess what? You're going to have a couple of losing years. It's going to happen to you. So so don't think we're going to avoid it because you're not. So even Warren Buffett's had losing years. Yeah, so. it happens. It's the reality yep. of investing. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, this one here says, let's see, I am a former client of yours and would like uh, – would 
and I would call into your radio program on Saturday mornings every so often to get a take on a particular company. Uh, I work at a company where Dish just installs cellular equipment, and when talking to the area construction manager, he was noting that over the next few years, Dish will be installing many more hundreds, maybe more of these installations. He also indicated the price for cell plans, and they seem very competitive if true. Uh, apparently, since Spring and T-Mobile uh, merged, they are not allowed to retain cell site on locations where both carriers were present. Looking at financials in light of what you taught, it would seem this company may be worth investing over the long term, which is what you normally like to do. Just curious, curious if you guys looked at this company recently. Hope you're doing well, and I always appreciate your personal communication when I was your client, and even for a period of time after that. I still enjoy reading the newsletters, uh, Trev. So uh, he didn't give me the uh, the uh, symbol on It's that. easy. It's dish. dish. Yeah, that's what I, I thought it was. <laughs> it is Dish, yeah. So, um, and I, I've seen a lot of negative on Dish. I mean, and he talked about the pauses, but I've seen a lot of negatives on them recently news-wise. So. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I, I haven't really followed it that closely, I guess. But, you know, I, I, I don't know, I guess. Obviously, the problem is if they're trying to still, like, do they still have Dish TV? I guess that's right. still a big thing for them. That obviously has been hurt quite substantially by streaming, which, and I know Spectrum has been, you know, quite aggressive in trying to price things properly as well. You know, and if that's all Dish's main money sources, it, it could be a big, big problem. Yeah. So so let's take a look at the numbers here at uh, Dish. Their symbol is, as you said, very easy, D-I-S-H. They are in the telecom services industry. Wow. High, high float here on the, on the short, 31.4%. I don't remember seeing anyone that uh, high in quite a while, which says that a lot of people think the stock is going to be declining. 85% institutional ownership. The P.E. ratio, wow, this looks very enticing as well. 2.1 versus 25 for the industry, but there must be a reason for that. Price to sales, 0.2 versus 1.2. Price to book value, 0.1 versus 1.6. That means you're paying $0.10 cents on the dollar for the price of the book value of this company, which is pretty low. Unfortunately, when we see the earnings, we see earnings for the company are down 36.9% over the last year, industry up 8.5, and even sales for Dish have declined by 8.6%, industry down 2.4. They do not pay a dividend. Take a look at the balance sheet. Uh, we got a current ratio of 0.5 versus 0.8. That worries me a little bit because they could be getting close to a point to where they don't have liquidity to pay their debt. Uh, debt equity, 1.3 versus 1.7. Not bad, but again, with that low current ratio, that does worry me. Net profit margin shows 7.8 versus 6.5, and return on equity is 6.7, about half the industry at 12.1. Chase? Yeah, so current price here for Dish, $3.92. I see the, the 52-week low, $3.21, and the 52-week high, wow, $16.45. So I see over the last year, it's down about 75% for Dish. Uh, also, even over the last five years, it looks troubling. It's down 88% over the last five yeah. years. I know they've had trouble. Yeah. Going forward as well, more concerns going out to December 2024. They're estimated to lose $0.20, cents, and that's even more problematic because I look at 2023, they're actually estimated to make $0.27. Cents. So I don't know if they're estimated to have profits this year from selling assets potentially or, or what, but I mean to go from a profit of $0.27 cents to a loss of $0.20 cents per share, 
Uh, that's a pretty substantial decline over a one-year time period. And I say we got like 12 analysts here, and, and, and someone does think they'll make 40 cents in 2024, but on the downside, somebody's looking for a loss of 261, and also going back 90 days. 90 days ago, the mean of the analyst said, no, they're going to make 38 cents in 2024, but now, as you said, it's a, a loss of 20 cents. So, um, yeah, there might be some good-sounding things here. Uh, the debt's not too bad, but the liquidity kind of worried me. Uh, I, I just don't think it'd be worth uh, the risk here on this, and I'd have to have to pass. And again, I mean, maybe they get acquired by somebody, but again, that's just such a big maybe. I never, and, and I don't I, know I, who would acquire them. And I just say, why? Who? Why yeah. would you want to acquire this company? I mean, it, it doesn't seem to be the direction. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure they do the, the streaming, and everything else, but it's just, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't get the point of it, and I hate it. You see a house with that dish on the side of it? I always hated that look. I think I have a dish on top of my house right now. Do you really? Yeah, I don't use it, but but but, well, but once you put it up there, it's kind of there. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're trying to become a permanent fixture because nobody else takes it down. I know the ha last house that I rented, they did have one on there. It was like up on the house, and they st I wouldn't use the service, but the, the, the dish was still there. Yeah, because so. why would they pay somebody to come take it down for you? Yeah, yeah, because I guess they put it up for free. Yeah, yeah, I'd assume. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I, yeah, it's just, I, I don't know. I I think the the numbers are. Not enticing for Dish. It's it's definitely. I mean, I saw they were up like seven percent yesterday. So I, I bet you it's a pretty volatile stock, and especially with uh, the, the the amount of short position on that. I mean, yeah, it it could move up and down quite aggressively, but it, it's not one that I guess I would be interested in holding for the long term. And obviously, we don't trade, so I'm not interested in holding in the short term either. Right, and and actually, from that last question we talked about, you know, how we do things compared to mutual funds, we, we're buying businesses that are strong businesses. I don't see that as a strong business. I'd probably want to, no, I mean, I mean, I'd mean, i say no. I, and, and I again, look elsewhere. Yeah, I, it doesn't mean it won't go up. doesn't mean it couldn't turn around, but there's no reason and that liquidity really worried me quite a bit. Uh, so. well, liquidity is such a big issue because especially in a time period like this where it's hard to finance good debt and especially you don't have good numbers. Right. You know, who's going to want to give you a credit line and then all of a sudden you get a credit line with high interest rates and all high all of a sudden has debt covenants on it, you borrow that money on the credit line, all of a sudden it comes due and you're screwed. So right. it, it's just liquidity, I think, is very important, and you don't want to see this business have to go through uh, a liquidity crunch. And wasn't there another one besides Dish? That DirecTV. Are, and and they're, are they gone? Are they even around? I, mean, I know my Dish on top of my house is DirecTV. And, uh, no, they I used DirecTV Stream for quite a while. Oh, so they, they used to switch okay. to a streaming platform. Um, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I liked him for the Padres, but now that the Padres have kind of the uh, direct-to-consumer service, that's what I'm going to do next year is I, I moved to Sling TV. It's about half the cost is uh, uh -huh. DirecTV Stream, and then when Padres play in season, I'll, I'll get the, the right. direct-to-consumer service. And I still don't think these dish services during bad weather still have that resolved. I think you're still during bad weather. <laughs> I remember I had DirecTV in uh, college, and it snowed in Flagstaff, so during a snowy day, you're like, Oh, man, you're stuck at home. You can't even watch TV. <laughs> well, you know what, Chase? I got to say, we did a terrible job today getting through these email things. I mean, we, we always – the show just goes by so quickly. But it, it, we, we've got them here. We'll, we'll do more next week, actually. Um, if you want to ask your questions, well, go to the website, smartinvesting2000.com. 
That's smartinvesting2000.com. Right in the middle of the page, you got Smart Investing Show questions. Uh, and, and I looked at, we got some great ones here from a, a, a Joel on uh, Spirit Realty. Uh, another one here from Sean. Uh, asking about uh, what's this question here? LAC, you know, another company where you see it going. Uh, another one from Jan. So uh, we we will get to those uh, next week. We'll we'll have to pick up the pace a little bit. It, it just I just like talking about things and and what we're doing when we answer these questions. It's like we're having the conversation we have in the office about when we're investing money for our portfolio. And frankly, I don't want to speed it up because I, I want to take the time for each question. Yeah. You know, I, I think it, it's more valuable to go through the, the details. And, you know, it, I could go through it very quickly and give you a 30-second, 60-second answer, but yeah. there's no value in that. That's true. Good point. All right, we won't speed it up. We'll just do it normally then. So, all right, well, there's a closing bell. Thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purpose only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. Again, that's 858-546-4306. And be sure to visit that website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. A lot of great information there. Also, the Smart Investing Show questions and the newsletter can sign up there as well. Have a great day. We'll talk more next week right here on the Smart Investing Show. Too late.